The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Collective Whisper podcast. Today, we have a very interesting guest, and we're going to talk to him in a few minutes. But before we do, I'd just like to remind people to subscribe to the show and follow us wherever you can. We're available on all streaming platforms. I hope you're well. I hope everything's going well for you. Let's get on to our next guest. The following interview contains mention and stories of attempted suicide. And we'd just like to warn any listeners or viewers of this podcast or video just to be aware of this. Thank you very much. So today I'd like to welcome Kevin Hines from San Francisco. Kevin Hines is a storyteller at heart. He's a best-selling author, global public speaker, and award-winning documentary filmmaker. In the year 2000, Kevin attempted to take his life by jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. Many factors contributed to his miraculous survival, including a sea lion which kept him afloat until the Coast Guard arrived. Kevin now travels the world sharing his story of hope, healing, and recovery while teaching people of all ages the art of wellness and the ability to survive pain with true resilience. Currently, Kevin is in pre-production of his new docuseries, The Journey, and is working on a comic book version of his life in cosmic and supernatural form called Hope Dealers. His fight has been long and arduous, but he is determined to remain committed to life until its natural end. In 2016, Mental Health America awarded Kevin their highest honor, the Clifford W. Beers Award for his efforts to improve the lives of and attitudes towards people with mental illnesses. In the summer of 2013, Kevin released his best-selling memoir titled Crack Not Broken, Surviving and Thriving After a Suicide Attempt. His motto, be here today and every day after that. Okay, so Kevin Hines, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on, you know, I've been uh, looking forward to getting you on for a while. I know, it's been way too long planning this. I, I've been, I've been uh, unavailable. I apologize. Glad to be here. That, that's a good sign when someone's unavailable because they're either doing the wrong thing or the right thing and hopefully the right thing. <laughs> 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 so tell us, where are you in the world right now? Uh, I'm in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. Okay. Yeah. So I, cause I know you're originally from San Francisco, aren't you? I am. First 34 years of my life spent in San Francisco, uh, six years now in, uh, in Georgia. And how is Atlanta, Georgia? Was that a very different place? Very different place, but my wife and I love it. It's quiet. It's, uh, there's a, a, a there's a forest outside in our backyard and you get the deer come on and they wander around the yards, both front and back. And they, they eat, eat the greenery and they enjoy themselves. And, uh, it's beautiful. The only thing I'm not too happy about is all the spiders. Really? But but like dangerous spiders or are they troublesome? Oh, yeah. Very dangerous spiders. Wow. I actually had a spider bite here a few weeks ago and uh, it was like someone saw it in my arm and they were like, is that a spider bite? And I was like, yeah. And they said, you should get antihistamines really quickly because that could get infected. But thank, I didn't actually, but it was fine in a few days. But yeah, they're troublesome, aren't they? Have you been bitten by a spider there? No, I have not. They, they, they. Most of them stay outside, but they just, they make me nervous. <laughs> yeah. And what are they, like, are they worse in the winter, the summer, when are they? Uh, the, in the winter, they make like a bunch of giant webs around the house and, and they they hang out. And and, and and it's a very particular spider. In the winter, they, they're, it's different. Yeah. So tell us, is your wife from Atlanta or is she, where is she from? No, no, no. My, my wife uh, from the Bay Area in California um, spent the first few years of her life in the Philippines. Um, uh, she, she, uh, she and I met in San Francisco um, in, in 2004. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Okay. We were married in 2007. What do you call again people from San Francisco? San Franciscans. San Franciscans. So you're both San Franciscans. Yeah. We get into, obviously, you, you have a really interesting story with your life. But before we kind of get into, you know, the bones of it, let's go back a little in time and talk about growing up, obviously, in San Francisco. And sure. Kevin Hines as a young boy and as a teenager. What kind of child were you? Well, I think to be fair, we have to go back even further to my infancy right. because that's what really laid the groundwork for the rest of my life. 
Um, and, 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 and to be fair to everyone, it's really what lays the groundwork for everyone's life. Um, because what people don't recognize is that pre-verbal, pre-being able for a baby to speak and, and walk and talk, um, if they are emotionally or mentally damaged uh, by abuse or neglect, uh, it can set the, 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 the tone for the rest of their existence or for potentially developing a mental illness later in life. So that being said, that being said, my, my, my infancy was very traumatic. My birth parents loved me and my brother, but they couldn't take care of us. They were on drugs and alcohol after they had us. And, and they would, we were in and out of crack motels, the kind of places you paid for by the hour. And if you didn't, you were out. Uh, the kind of places with concrete slab floors and box springs for mattresses. And these were just, this is, it was a dangerous, tumultuous time for our family. And uh, my birth parents would leave me and my brother unattended as infants to go do scores, sell drugs. And that was our lives, not because they didn't love us, not because they didn't want to be there for us, but because they had to pay those bills on the hour by the hour. And they had to do that. However, illegal, they had to make it happen. And so, and so it wasn't that they were bad people or that they were, uh, you know, you know, I don't subscribe to that good and bad people ideology. I believe that people are forced into situations based on their experiences um, that lead them down certain paths. Uh, 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 folks that don't have great opportunity or great chance in life, and they had no no financial income, they had no feasible legal income, so they had to hustle. Um, and, and and to keep a roof over our heads with these two, you know, crying babies. And one fateful day, one one motel clerk was like, "I've had enough." These kids are screaming all day long. He called the police. And it was probably the first best day of our lives because the police came in with Child Protective Services. They swooped us up and they placed us into the foster care system. That wasn't the best part. That was a tough road to, to be, be on. But it was, in, sen- in a sense, the best part that they came and picked us up because we weren't being taken care of as infants. We were being fed Kool-Aid, Coca-Cola, and sour milk as our diet, what mom and dad could steal. And, and, and so... And so it's really important that that we be placed in the foster care. The tragic part is that as foster care goes, we were neglected, and my brother and I both got bronchitis, and he died. And 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 uh, I, I think about Jordash every day, and what would have you know, how I got this chance to live, and then have this second chance at life. And we'll get into that um, after my attempt. To- how old were you when he died? Just a few months old. I was just you know oh, maybe. So- uh, you know, because I, I bounced around in in, uh, in foster care from four months old to I think nine months old. I think around that that age, if I'm not mistaken. I should consult my mom Debbie to find that out. But uh, but I made my way through foster care without Jordash, and I immediately developed a severe detachment disorder from reality and abandonment issues that follow me until today. So, so my uh, you know, this is all pre-verbal, so I'm I'm damaged from the get-go, and from the from the Kool-Aid, Coca-Cola, and sour milk, this malnourishment. I had a distended belly filled with liquid, bruised from the top of my sternum to the bottom of my abdomen from being malnourished for so long. Um, and, and, and I was really sick, and I landed eventually in the home of Pat and Debbie Hines. They came and they picked me from a foster home to be their son, but they didn't know I was violently ill every single day. And so for 30 days of being in the Heinz home, I was violently ill. Doctor after doctor, specialist after specialist, no one could tell Pat and Debbie what was wrong with their new-to-be son until one specialist came forward and said, Pat, Debbie, there's nothing physically wrong with this child. It's all emotional, nine months of age, which was false. My gut-to-brain health, they didn't have the science back then, but your gut biomes uh, is like your second brain, your gut Biomes are directly connected to your brain chemistry. It's a symbiotic relationship. If your gut is unhealthy because of the food you've been eating, uh, it's going to affect the functionality of your brain. And and so if you want to put it bluntly, I was mentally ill from the very beginning. Very beginning. When you talk about that, you know, I even see that now, obviously, as I, I mentioned earlier, my wife's going to have a baby in December, but... You know, when when a baby is in the womb and even its relationship with its mother, which is very special, but they're always connected. But even with its dad, you know, there's times there the baby's kicking and he's getting a bit violent in her womb. And, his, you know, he's just wanting to get out. And I put my hand there and I talk to him 
and she my wife goes he's just yeah. he's quiet now he's listening yeah. to you you know he hears your voice and he knows your voice so it's amazing as a baby things yeah. we never understood years ago like how babies react to someone speaking to them while they're in the womb but but even more so once they're born mm-hmm. how they think mm-hmm. i know that voice i recognize that voice that nurtured me outside the womb you know it's fascinating and it brings me a, 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 a interesting story to mind um my goddaughter zoe francesca she's the cutest little girl in the world she's now 7 years old um but when she was in the womb i would sing to her I would just make up songs. I mean, I, 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 yeah. goofy, you know, Uncle Kevin just making up songs, um, you know, just and I, I've always made up songs on my own. Like they, they don't make any sense. Yeah, they're not, yeah, they're yeah. not meant for public consumption. They're like meant in my own head. <laughs> but uh, but I sing them out loud. It's part of my mania sometimes. And I would just sing these songs to her in the womb. And then when she was born, I sang to her again. And I would sing to her every single day. We would see her, and she just she was enamored by it. And she would and then. As she got older and got verbal, she would start singing along with me. And now when I go over to her house in Connecticut, uh, she'll get her little guitar out and, and we'll sing together and she'll make up words to songs. I'll make up words to songs and we'll record it. It's just a whole bunch of fun. Um, and so, you know, but when, when you think about child infant, infant trauma and pre-verbal, if you even go back to being in the womb, if, if someone in that relationship, uh, who's having the baby is screaming and yelling all the time. That baby's going to be born with anxiety. That baby's going to be born under a great amount of duress and stress and a great amount of emotional trauma. Uh, conversely, if someone in the in the relationship is very violent with with the with one of the spouses, it's a similar situation. Born with trauma, and that trauma can catch up to you. And by the time you turn fifteen, sixteen, you have severe anxiety disorder severe depression, uh, bipolar. We have to recognize in this country and around the globe, really where you are, Spain, everywhere, that that generational trauma is real. Womb trauma is real. And infancy and childhood trauma is extremely real. And in order to reach kids who have been traumatized in this way, you need to meet them where they're at and help them guide them to be resilient in the face of pain. Because all they've known is pain, so how can they get to a place of peace, right? You have to guide them there. Those of us who are mentally sound, mentally sane, need to protect those kinds of kids. And, you know, it's really interesting, isn't it, with mental illness, and especially right now, because, you know, obviously, you know, we live in this kind of woke generation as well. And it's good in some ways, but bad in other ways, because people obviously are, you know, using it for the wrong reasons in some way. But for the for the people who use it for the right reasons, who recognize mental health problems and are willing to address them and people who've been down that road. I mean, it's a really important time because the conversation we're having right now would never have happened on the radio or on radio or TV shows 25 years ago because people just didn't understand. And I mean, yeah, if you break it down to a simple analogy, if you put a child, a bag over a child's head and the, the, a man came in and started beating his mother, that child would never have to see it, but would always know that guy's voice and would always know that energy. And so it's similar for a child in the womb. They feel that energy and they hear yeah. the sounds. Yeah. Yeah. And they hear the sounds and they feel the abuse and the neglect and it's dangerous. And, and you know, uh, so many kids across the world are being abused and neglected right now. It's it it, it it breaks my heart to see that kind of thing go on. Uh, I was neglected. I was never physically abused, um, but but I can I can empathize, and 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 the reason I can empathize is because I travel the world. And pre COVID, I was traveling the world three hundred forty five days a year, sharing my story to audiences of all sizes, and the the, the same thing would happen at the end of every presentation. The same thing every presentation. 13 to 18 year old individuals would come up to me and say, I have this diagnosis, but my parents don't believe it's real. And by the way, um, I'm being abused at home or I'm being abused by a a stepbrother, stepfather, stepsister. It doesn't matter. I'm being abused or neglected. And my parents don't believe that's really happening. And they're invalidating my pain. 
when you invalidate someone's pain, it makes them begin to question who they are, their personal identity, and how they how they process their existence in this in this life. And when you when you invalidate someone's struggle and you say it's all in your head, get over it, move on, snap out of it, what's wrong with you? Pull yourself up by bootstraps. Um, you're you're being a part of breaking a soul. People need validation. They need people to recognize their struggle because that's the only way they're going to talk about it. The only way someone is going to come to you, a person who may empathize and tell you their truth, share their pain so a pain shared can become a pain halved, is if you are willing to listen without judgment, listen to understand, and not just to respond. Yes. It, you know, it's it's completely true, everything you say, because now I think what's great about society nowadays, you know, there's so much bullshit still going on with the world and we're kind of caving in on ourselves a little bit sometimes with social media and everything. But the one good thing is that when it comes to that kind of validation, people are realizing whether it's with their own children or employees or whatever, you have to take the time to say, well done, you're doing a good job. Keep that up. You'll have some struggles, but and if you need assistance, come to me and I can talk to you. And I, I, I know that with my own boy, you know, because I can see his insecurity sometimes. And, you know, you have to, you know, at times with your children, they'll argue with you and you have to swallow your ego and say, I understand where you're coming from, but don't worry, it'll be OK. And, you know, I, I'll help you and you're doing a great job because I look back and I had a particularly difficult childhood with my father. He was very strict with me and always told me, you know, you're stupid and you're not good enough. And I look back now and I think, OK, that was um, that was a kind of a jealousy thing where sometimes parents don't want their children to become somebody different or so or to become them but version 2.0 with with better qualities and stuff so yeah. it's a real it's a really bad part of human nature sometimes as adults we try to stop kids becoming something because of jealousy and ego and you know it's the great thing nowadays is that a lot of parents are realizing that i can't let my personality impede on my child's progress and I have yeah. to give them that validation. That validation and allowing them to to find themselves and find what they want to do in life and how they want to exist on this plane and be a productive member of society um, and and helping them reach their goals and achieve their goals however high they want to achieve them. You know, I, I think that you know you said your father was difficult and you had a struggling relationship. Um, is, is he still with us? No, my, my father passed in 2005. Oh, and, you know, it's it's one of those things where before he passed, you know, I I forgave him in my own heart and, you know, and we had moved on. But, you know, like I was in a big family, so it was lots of difficulty with him and my family. And, and it's one of those things where, you know, you look back and wish it never happened, but then it makes you who you are and what you become. And for me, the blessing of it all is that I look, it taught me how to be a better father to my own children because it taught me, okay, that's something I, I'm not going to do. Mm. And and unfortunately, I've had to learn through my father's mistakes. But if it prepares me to be a better father and a better man, I will take that. You know, I love that perspective. You're not, you're not playing the victim. You're not saying you're suffering. You're saying that I went through hell. I came through it and now I'm going to teach my kids to be, I'm going to be good to my kids and teach them what a, what a, what a great father can be. And that's amazing. That's, that's a great way to, to, to change and shift the paradigm because when they grow up, if they ever have kids uh, based on your relationship with them, they're going to treat their own kids that way. And that's, that's amazing. Yeah. And that's actually a question I want to ask you because you probably see this a lot. Do you think when it comes to generational issues, so for example, let's say I, I try to be the best dad I can and then I hope my child or children will be that. But then do you see generational things happening every second, third generation where, for example, let's say I do my best, but my boy starts drinking or gambling or whatever, yeah. you know, any vices and he can control it. And then he doesn't pass on the lessons I've tried to give him, but he has his own things. Do you see that in second, third generations? There's no way to guarantee that 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 our the way we teach and nurture our children um, is is the it becomes a part of their personality. We can't we can't we can't uh, we can't uh, 
confirm that that will be the case. We generational trauma is real, and 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 the the trauma from let's say your father or his, or his father could be passed down to your son in some way, shape, or form. I'm sure, um, but I would just say the the kinder you are, the more loving you are, the more empathetic you are with your children, the stronger they can become. And if you teach them to be resilient in the face of pain and hold gratitude inside pain, if you teach them that pain can do one of two things. It can, you can let it defeat you or you can let it build you brick by brick from the ground up until you're stronger than ever. Um, and, and so, so, you know, as long as I think you teach them in that way um, for their whole lives, I think they're going to take a great deal from it. And I think that we can learn and unlearn uh, how to behave in life. Uh, you know, people aren't born to hate other people. I'm sorry. Nobody is born a hater. Uh, even if you have generational trauma, no one is born to hurt other people. Uh, that's something that's learned. And all of the, all of the, all the people that, that history would call evil and, and wrong and bad, um, uh, they were taught those things by people before that came before them. Uh, when they were children, when they were children, they learned that hate and that, that, that horrible nature of themselves. Uh, when they were children, they, they, they learned, um, how to, how to be damaged and take this inner critical voice that started from every hateful, hurtful, spiteful, negative, mean thing that had ever been said or done to them. They internalized it and then they push it out on other people. That's why bullies exist because hurt people hurt people. If we can teach the bullies to unlearn their nature, to, to find in a way, in a sense, recovery from their damaged lives, we can then train a bully to become a kind, empathetic, giving soul who uh, who is finding some sort of redemption. I'll give you I'll give you a prime example, and we we, we got into it a little bit in, in the beginning before we started recording. But um, I'm adopted. You know, my, my 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 birth mom is half Mexican. My birth dad is half Mexican, half Italian. He passed away. My birth mom is black, African, Jamaican, Arawak, Indian, Portuguese, Scottish, Irish, English, and Sephardic Jew, basically everything but Russian. Um, and we've confirmed that. And uh, I was adopted by Pat and Debbie Hines, who are Irish and German. Uh, and Pat's, Pat's uh, uh, father's family came from Ireland. Uh, they came uh, um, and... and, uh, and his uncle, my great uncle, Kevin Joseph Ryan, may he rest in peace. He was my best friend in the whole world uh, until I met my wife. Uh, and and he, he was 30 years drunk during my dad's life. And so no good to my dad. Didn't help my dad at all. My dad really struggled through his childhood. But he was 30 years sober during my life. And he saved my life. He absolutely saved my life. At his funeral... At his funeral, 25 individuals stood up and said, Uncle Kevin saved my life. It was amazing. Because he went from a place of where, where he was a, a dangerous man. He was an aggressive man. He was a violent man. Um, he hurt people. And then he got into AA and he changed his entire life. And he dedicated the rest of his life to finding people on street corners who were bent out on alcohol and saying, come with me to 90 meetings in 90 days and, and we'll get you to a better place. Well, it was like a, it was like a, a football game or a soccer game where the first half of his life was a total disaster yeah. and the second half was the complete opposite. Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and, and he, um, he, he would come to every one of my psych ward stays every single day without fail until he got sick of pancreatic cancer. He would, he would come um, to, he would bring me a cup of soup, a comic book and some conversation. It was amazing. The, the man was, in my opinion, the man was an angel. He was a tough, tough angel. He was rough around the edges, but he was an angel, you know. Like obviously growing up, you know, just looking through your background there and watching your 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 documentary. What's really interesting was for me, I, that, that moment there where you, you went back and you were talking to your teacher and you were talking about wrestling in, in Archbishop Reardon School. And... Um, it was really interesting because you said to him at one stage, oh, you know, you probably thought I was on drugs and you were, in fact, suffering from bipolar. And 
the, the really interesting thing is that when you had these different people in your life, once you met Pat and Debbie Hines and they, they raised you, you had obviously his brother or his, he was his brother. Was he uh, your uncle Kevin Ryan? Was he his brother? Yeah. He was my dad's uncle. He was my great uncle. Your dad's uncle. Yeah. So, so you had these people in your life who really, you know, put you on a path to help you, but because of mental health issues, there's only so much people can do it. And especially if they don't understand it fully. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, 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 it took everybody in the family, uh, you know, a while to cope with what they were dealing with, with me, because I was so difficult. I was so, uh, um, my actions, my inactions, my, uh, my struggles, uh, they were overwhelming to, to my family. Um, you know, in in and out of psych wards. Was there a point in your life, you know, like when you were seven or eight or nine, that you felt there's something different about me? Fourth grade. Okay. In fourth grade, in fourth grade, I felt a massive duality inside me. I felt there was a good and a bad, and that can exist for anyone, but it was extreme for me. I remember as a kid. And I don't really talk about this more often because I don't, I don't usually think about it when I go on podcasts, things like that. But when I, when I was a kid, when I would lay in bed, I would, I would pretend that my right hand was good and my left hand was bad. And I would go like this. And the left hand would always win. Really? Yeah. Because I felt, I, as it, from a child even though I had so much love in my family, even though my mom and dad, Pat and Debbie, loved me endlessly, unconditionally, even though so did our, our ex, you know, extended family, I always felt less than. I always felt useless and worthless. And I couldn't articulate it back then, but I can articulate it now. And one of the, one of the main reasons I felt that way was because of the massive amount of bullying coming my way. I'm part black. I went to an all-white school, and they, they let me know it. The eighth graders would pick me up and place me in a garbage can face first and tell me that's what I was, garbage. Because I didn't look like them. Um, they would call me Little Red N-Word every day. Yeah. Really? Because I had uh, bright red, big hair, puffy hair, and um, – and they, they really let me have it every day. And the kids in my class were no better. The kids in my class would hold me from behind and punch me in the gut and, and you know, um, and so no one would see the bruises. And they, they, they'd get behind me and crouch down. Then someone would push me over and I'd hit my head in the concrete on the asphalt of, of the, of the school, schoolyard. And they, they had it in for me every day. And it was brutal. Finally, I left that school and went to an all-black grade school for eighth grade, and I was accepted in, in on day one. You know, just it just it was brutal. It was it was vicious, and I recognize today that those people hurt people because they were hurt. You know, some of those kids, some of those kids are being abused at home. I would find out later. You know, they they were just they were struggling themselves, and I I completely forgive all of them. I wish them all nothing but the best. I don't even know if they know they had that much of an effect on my life, but they did. Um, you know, it, it played a role into my clinical depression and bipolar disorder leading to me going to the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, but I don't hold any, you know, I don't want them to hold any guilt for that. I just want them to know, you know, because they've all changed their lives. They've all become, you know, they've all become better people, you know, as far as I know. One thing that strikes me there that, that's really interesting is the fact that when you know in life definitely between races whether it's black people white people indian people aboriginal whatever i mean the the society that you know these people live in we're all told you know we're we're equal we have to live together but the problem is that in reality like in your case you were trying to live that life and then you know, these kids wouldn't give you a chance. So you left that school and you went to an all black school and then you were accepted. So that kind of sends a message to kids as well. Well, this is the way it is. I, I, the other school, they won't give me a chance. But look here, I'm being accepted by my own people. And unfortunately, it's kind of like a little bit of segregation in the mind, too, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm, I'm listen, I'm part white. 
right? I'm like, but 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 I'm part of a lot of other things, and it was the it was the brown part of me that that none of these kids and the black part of me that none of these kids wanted anything to do with, and they made it clear to me every single day. I mean, it wasn't like it was like one day out of the week that this happened. This happened every single day. Yeah, and it was it was horrible. It was vicious, and and, and I, I I um it was devastating. I would come home crying every day. My mom had to, and this is you know you're talking about a kid who's in fourth grade who's being attacked by eighth graders. That should never happen anywhere. That's ridiculous. You know, did that lead then? Because obviously, when you went into high school then and you started wrestling, was that kind of part of the reason where you thought I want to toughen up myself, get myself some confidence, and get on the wrestling team? You know, it, it, part of a uh, part of uh, my because I had I had I tried a lot of sports in high school, and and Archbishop in high school was. Uh, by far one of the best experiences I have ever had in my whole life. Um, uh, there was a little bit of issues come in the, in the, in freshman year, trying to find yourself and find a group of kids that could accept you, but that happens everywhere. But after you get accepted and you develop some level of popularity in the school, cause it's, it's a small ecosystem, right? Um, I had a great many friends, great many, uh, you know, I would even call them today colleagues. Um, and, and I went to, I, did, I tried wrestling and football. Um, and, and it was a, a phenomenal experience because um, I was good at them. I was good at those sports. I started bodybuilding and I started get, getting, getting in really good shape. Um, and I could protect myself. And so, yeah, it was part of that. That was a part of uh, sowing my oats, if you will. And, making sure that I could defend myself and, um, you know, but, but truth be told at an all boys Catholic school with very strict rules, I didn't have to defend myself. Okay. You know, there it, it, freshman year, it was, it was a little rocky because I was, you know, I was in one freshman Spanish class where the kids, the seniors who hadn't graduated from their, who had uh, had to retake their Spanish class were in my same class and they were, they were pretty brutal to me. But those kids um, ended up getting kicked out of school, and 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 that was a, a short-lived situation. Right, right. There was a few other minor, you know, fallouts with certain individuals that were were, were nerve-wracking, but nothing as bad as as grade school. Yeah, yeah. Grade school was the one that left its mark on you. It left its mark on me. When I look back and I think of Archbishop Reardon, I think what a great four years I had there. That's nice to see. I mean, because you know, obviously, we look back in different, you know phases of our our schooling system and for some people you know it might be high school that gave them the problem but it might be grade school but i think in high school you're a little bit more equipped because you're a little bit more mature of course it's still tough but i think in grade school you know they always say the first seven years of a child's life is the most important so during that seven years if you have bullying and you know abuse in the school in any way i think it has a longer lasting effect doesn't it absolutely 100 percent uh, you know, you know, and, 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 and when you grow up from that and you, and you become an adult, uh, and your brain's fully developed, you, you see things differently anyway. So then obviously then, you know, you felt there was something there, that duality. And, and I love the way you say about the left hand and the right hand, because I think even for lots of people who have, who have no diagnosed mental health condition of any sort, <clears throat> they go through this period in their life or and whether it's as a teenager or an adult where there's a darkness and a light and I always say you know to everybody I think you know not to everybody sorry but to more to my my kids and my wife you always have to have darkness and light because one complements the other and you like you know if if the light shines something on the darkness to show it's there you're learning something but I think when it comes to our brains we are two different people, everybody in their heads, because I think people have bad thoughts sometimes, but then it's how they learn to control that and not become sociopaths and how they say, you know, like you said, the left hand could do all the damage. But even though the, for you, the left hand was winning, the right hand was still controlling it a little bit. No, I was always a good kid. I was always a kind and compassionate kid. I always tried to stop bullies when I saw them. You know, I'll never forget um, a friend of mine, Michael Bowie, was being held down by a kid named Nick Barsetti. Uh, and, 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 and Michael's just swinging away and Nick's just holding him down. And this is something they did with me all the time. 
And I walked up to, 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 to Nick and I said, Nick, let Michael go and I'll, I'll be in his place. Okay. And Nick was like, your funeral. And he, and he, and he, and he let Michael go and Mike ran away and I took his place. Yeah. And for the rest of that day, I got bullied. You know, what's really interesting with that, though, he there was a there was a kind of a power there because he wasn't doing it voluntarily. But you did. So you had a little bit of control because you were more or less. It's like when you said to someone, hit me if you want. You're you're, you're in control of the situation. So even though you were down on the ground and he bullied you, you had won a little bit of a psychological battle there, hadn't you? Yeah. And I I, I feel like I taught Nick a lesson that day, you know. Yeah, that, that's that's how I saw it, you know, and um, and you grow up and you get older and you, and you see life differently and you have new relationships and new uh, new connections made. Um, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you, my friend, I uh, all of these things, my mental illness, my struggles living with bipolar, um, the bullying uh, at 19, I just couldn't. I couldn't bear the brunt and the weight of the pain anymore. You know, you were diagnosed at 17. Yes. Diagnosed at 17. And by 19, I started thinking heavily of taking my life. Right. But I want to make it clear to your audience. I, I never wanted to die. I I believed I had to. And those are two categorically different things. Okay. I believed I had no other course of action. I believe my family hated me. I believe my friends wanted me dead. None of that was true, but I believed it. It, it Here's the thing. If you can recognize in the face of suicidal crisis that your thoughts don't have to become your actions, and we just talked about that, that your thoughts don't have to lead you down a bad path. But if your thoughts don't have to become your actions, then you never have to attempt or die in the first place. If you can, if you can use enough self-awareness techniques to say, just because I'm thinking of suicide doesn't mean I have to attempt suicide. What needs to happen is I need to turn to someone next to me and say, I need help now. And if the first person I turn to or the first 10 people I turn to can't help me because some people can't handle this, I have to keep going and keep searching until someone is willing to empathize with my pain and help me stay here. Probably what happens in some of those cases is that if you do turn to someone and they don't want to help you or can't help you or don't see the signs, the, the more people you turn to, the percentages of them saving you get less and less, I imagine, because the thing is, at that stage, you're thinking, OK, I might ask another person, but you won't keep going. Eventually, it's kind of a validation. They don't care about me. I may as well continue to do what I'm going to do. Well, you can think about it like that, but you, you have to think about probability. The more people you ask, the more likely someone is to empathize with your struggle. Yes. I see your point, but look at it the, at the converse way, because this is how I've lived for the last 21 years living with suicide, chronic suicidal thoughts. In 21 years of living with chronic suicidal thoughts, I haven't always been around a person who loves me dearly to ask for help. I've been around people that I don't know. And I've said, I need help now. And they said, what does that mean? And I said, I'm, I'm having suicidal thoughts. Can you help me? contact a family member, a friend? Can you help me get to a hospital? What can you help me do? Because I'm, I'm really struggling. And often it's not the first or second person I, I, I talk to because they're like, whoa, what the heck, buddy? But, but eventually someone has always come to my aid because of, the, because of the balance of numbers. I've always kept asking. And every time I keep asking, someone has been willing to say, help save my life in the last 21 years. That's, that's two decades of living with regular thoughts of suicide but never attempting again past jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, which I know we didn't really get into. But, but you know, I did. I, I went to the Golden Gate Bridge at 19. I jumped off. I was in the water. I was saved by a sea lion. A sea lion came to my aid, kept me afloat. The Coast Guard boat arrived behind me. Uh, the Coast Guard boat picks me up. They get me to the, ho- the ambulance. Ambulance gets me to the hospital. In the hospital, uh, one of the foremost back surgeons on the West Coast performs a uh, a, a, a 10 and a half hour back surgery on me through my left side. I got a 23 staple scar across my left side. Um, and, and he saves me the ability to walk, stand and run. Only uh, of the 39 Golden Gate Bridge Jump survivors, 19 have come forward like I did to say they all had the same instant regret that I had when I, ju- when, when I jumped. Um, that's the majority of the ones that remain alive today because only 26 of them remain alive today. Many have died of natural causes or old age. But of the ones who stayed alive and who, and who 
regretted it. Five of us can stand, walk, and run. They call us the most exclusive survivors club in the world. There's a book of the same name, The Survivors Club by Ben Sherwood. And, and I make a point here. I get to be here. And getting to be here, in my opinion, is a privilege and a gift no matter the pain you're in. Because, my friend, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. It's a choice. Yeah, and, and what what's really interesting there is when you say, like, how, you know, obviously we have to go through pain, but it's what you, how you would choose to address that pain. And I love you. I love that philosophy you have of keep asking people, you know, because there's a, there's a guy I know very well, and he was on the podcast on our second episode. His name is Colin Farrell and Colin Farrell um, is a, a, an amazing worker for, he has an, mm-hmm. an association in the UK called Stamp Out Suicide. And he has done walks all around the UK, raised hundreds of thousands for this charity. But he, has a, a charity hotline there where people call. But what he always, you know, what he said to me on the podcast, he said, unfortunately, because of the way people are, people say, I hope you're not thinking of doing anything stupid, right? And this puts the idea in the person of the head who are in their head, like, this is a stupid idea. I can't talk to them. Whereas sometimes you just have to say it out. I hope you're not contemplating suicide. Now, I suppose there's lots of different methods, but I think it's like, look, I'll be honest, in my family, there's been suicides and not, not, not in my direct family, but I lost a cousin uh, years ago and, and, and he was a lovely bloke and nobody ever knows why. And I lost a co- another cousin there last year and people yeah. never know why. Sometimes they don't get the answers. But the thing is, what always bugs me about suicide, especially in Ireland, people, uh, it comes on the news and they don't yeah. say, oh, it's a suicide because they're yeah. protecting the family. They call it a tragedy. So we have this kind of taboo around the word suicide where people don't want to speak about it for, because of the shame for the family. But unfortunately for me, I believe that it's hiding things too much and we need to speak about things more openly. And sometimes people don't even want to yeah. say to a suicidal person, you're not thinking of suicide because they're afraid of the words. Do you know that the crisis text line here in America, which is traveling around the world now, the crisis text line... Out, their algorithm, their their on their digital algorithm has has recognized through through keyword searches that by asking the direct question to someone in suicidal pain, are you thinking of killing yourself? Followed by have you made plans to take your life? Followed by do you have the means? Gets a more truthful answer than even the question, are you thinking of suicide because of the taboo on the word suicide? Or even the question, are you thinking of self-harm? Because self-harm is not suicide, it's self-harm. When you ask the direct question, are you thinking of killing yourself? More people will tell you the truth than all those other uh, avenues. And it doesn't put the thought in their mind if they're not already thinking of it. That's a myth. It gives them permission to speak on their pain. So let me speak directly to our brothers and sisters and individuals in Ireland because I want to talk to them because I know they're in pain. I know they're in pain. I know they're hurting. I know there's a lot of suicide there. And I know they're struggling. And, 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 And they're my family. My family is there, literally. I want to say, you know, you can fight this pain, you can defeat this pain, you can survive this pain if you recognize that that your pain doesn't have to destroy you, it can build you. You know, people in cultures all over the world, different than America, look at pain differently. They look at it as a process in life. And if they can hold gratitude inside said pain, they can find resilience from it. And gratitude and resilience are two of the most protective factors from suicide, keeping people who are living in pain alive and well. I live with chronic back pain. It is awful. It hurts every day. Sometimes I throw out my back putting on a sock um, because of the metal plate and cage in my back. I'm not complaining. I'm telling you a fact. And that's okay. Talk about your pain. Never silence your pain. When you silence your pain, when you bury it, it only bubbles and festers and grows until it bursts in things like rage, aggression, violence, substance use disorder, eating disorders, suicidal ideations, or thoughts. So when you share your pain, as I said earlier, a pain shared becomes a pain had. You are worthy of other people's time. Tell the truth about your struggle so you can survive it. Unfortunately, the the suicide is that doorway with no floor on the other side and you don't have a chance to come back. And for people like yourself who 
have, you know, done it and have committed the act and then live to tell the tale. Like you said, when you jumped, you had that instant regret. And I can only imagine for the thousands and millions of people who, you know, committed suicide by, you know, especially by, especially by means where there is no way back, like hanging or things like this, where, you know, the thing is they they commit the act, but there's no way back. And I'm sure for lots of them, you know, God bless them. They had that instant regret, but there's nothing they could do because they were alone. Yeah. You know, and you you made me think of something, uh, you know, and, 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 and I, I, I don't push this on people like some folks do, but I will say, um, I believe people don't commit suicide. I believe they die by suicide, just like they would die of any other organ disease. Your brain is an organ. Your brain is an organ, arguably the most important organ in your entire body, controlling every action, inaction you take, decision, indecision. Uh, for lack of a better term, if your brain is malfunctioning, there goes the rest of you. And what I understand in my, in my, from, from my perspective is that people die by suicide just like they would die of liver, lung, kidney, or heart disease. You know, and, and when, we, when we use that language, because I do think language matters. When we do that, when you use that language and, and say died by, it makes it more, um, especially I would say in Ireland and places that reject suicide, reject talking about it. I would say when you say died by, it humanizes the individual. It, it, it makes them seem like they're not committing a crime or, or committing adultery. And to no, 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 I mean, no disrespect to, to you or your words. You say what you need to say. That's, that's all. I think we've just, even when I say that, like I realize sometimes, you know, maybe you shouldn't say commit suicide, but it's what we're programmed to say, isn't it? Because we've heard this all our lives and, and people, People won't say that to the family, for example, but they'll say it outside the family or the circle that say, oh, he, he committed suicide when they should say he died by suicide. Because if we if we if we if we say commit, we're vilifying the person. And I had to learn this myself years ago. I used to say the same thing. So, you know, no, no, no blame to you at all. I just I just I look at it differently now and I see that people can. But by shifting the language, we can help people accept things just a little, a little more, help people understand things a little more and make it more, um, make us as human beings more capable of having the conversation at the dinner table with our loved ones. Are you thinking of killing yourself? Have you made plans to take your life? Do you have the means? And what can I do right now to keep you safe? One, one thing that struck me, you know, watching your documentary and reading your stories the woman on the bridge. So that day you, you went to, you know, take your own life. Basically you, you know, whatever was going through your head, it's quite interesting. The whole concept of somebody unknowingly or knowingly that might recognize something get getting in your way or like, you know, changing the course of what could happen. So what was interesting was when I heard you telling that story about the woman asked you to take some photos and, you took the photos, but it still didn't stop you going to do because you like you had wholeheartedly decided to do it. And even that humanizing from her by just taking photos didn't change your mind, did it? She asked me to take a photo and I thought, how can she not care for me? You know, why doesn't she care about me? But the reality is, is that she was in her own head experiencing the ninth wonder of the world, the Golden Gate Bridge, which some call the most beautiful man-made structure ever created. And she was experiencing beauty, and I was experiencing what I thought was going to be my end, right? You know, so it's just, you know, it, it, I hold no ill will toward that woman or anybody like her. No, no, I just, no. I, I just wish that one person would have seen me that day and said, hey, kid, are you okay? Is something wrong? Can I help you? I would have told them everything and begged them to save me. Tell me then, obviously, moving forward um, with, you know, with, everything that that you're going to do and um, where you know because your podcasts have been going re- really well and i know you're going to do an animated series so what's next for you now yeah so right now thank you for asking right now we've got our hindsights podcast found where all podcasts are found you can look up that look that up at h-i-n-e-s-i-g-h-t-s podcast hindsights podcast um and it's a play on words with my last name obviously um, and, and it's a great program where we interview people from all over the world 
who have triumphed over incredible adversity or individuals who work in the mental and physical health fields who have a great wealth of knowledge to share uh, and some celebrities as well. Uh, and, and we just share stories. We share amazing stories like you're doing right now. We love it. It's, it's fun. It just started. We just released it. So check that out. Um, I have my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Kevin Hines, 500 plus videos, all designed to help you with your mental health, um, and suicide prevention. Uh, and they are, some of them are very science backed and evidence informed tools to change your life, but they're also entertaining. A lot of celebrities on there. Um, and we just want to keep creating beautiful content for, to change people's lives. We're re-releasing our documentary, Suicide, the Ripple Effect, uh, very soon this, this month on Vimeo On Demand. Uh, and that's going to be, uh, so just stay tuned to at Kevin Hines story on any social media platform, uh, to see that film. Uh, it's, it's helping people around the world. We've had 500 people say that the film saved their life. Wow. Well, you know, Kevin, I mean, thanks for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And, you know, I, I, your story is fascinating and, and not just from, you know, the, the negative or bad things that happen, that happen in your life, but it's from the way, obviously, you've turned it around and now the way you're helping others and, and you know, by doing your public speaking and by speaking to people privately when they come up to talk to you at these shows, I think you've done wonders for, you know, their lives and I think through your shows and through shows like your animated show and your podcast, I think you're helping people every day. And I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you, my friend. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Kevin Hines, everybody. Take care. If you were affected or have been affected by any of the stories or interviews you heard today, we will provide you with the helpline and the info for the podcast. And we ask you to please seek counseling or help if you are in need or in crisis. Thank you. Okay, Kevin, thank you very much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. That was a very interesting story, and I'm sure that will help a lot of people and point them in the right direction to get some help if they need it. And, you know, it was fascinating to hear about your struggles in life and, you know, the path it led you on and the choices you made. And But because of those choices, they have kind of changed your life path and put you on the path to a better, better life. And we want to commend you for all the work you're doing. You're helping so many people with your public speaking. And I know that all those people that come and talk to you after the show and get your advice, I know that that greatly improves their life. So we want to thank you for that and keep doing the good work. And thanks again for coming on the show. Kevin Hines, everybody, thank you so much. Okay, everybody, thank you for listening to the show. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. My name is Simon Kay. Please follow and subscribe to the show, and we will give you entertaining guests as long as we can. Keep Stay with us, and we will look after you. But until then, take care of yourself, take care of your family, and all the best. Bye-bye.